Welcome everyone to the AI and Stuff podcast. I'll be your friendly neighborhood AI necromancer host, and we're on with David Knickerbocker. Hey everyone. Hey David. Um, okay, so actually, um, this is our first time talking. Um, I I asked you to bring a beer. Did you did you bring a beer to the podcast? Yeah, I did. I uh, got my favorite brand, Block Fifteen. Block Fifteen. Um, oh yeah. Um, I'm having something in Japanese, Kirin Ichiben. I just, I don't even know oh, yeah. if I'm pronouncing it right. You know this? You know this? Yeah, brand? yeah, yeah. Yeah, I, I actually grew up in Japan. I lived in Japan 28 years. So, um, so Kirin Tanre, Tanre um, was my beer of choice when I lived over there. No, yep. you speak Japanese? I did better when I was younger. Um, you understand Japanese? I can listen to it, but I can't speak it. Like I never built the confidence. Um, my wife is Japanese and, you know, after, uh, we started dating, um, she learned English faster than I learned Japanese. And then I just kind of gave up. <laughs> that, that's crazy. But you can understand it, right? You can understand. Yeah, I can listen to it when her parents are visiting. Um, I, I can kind of get the gist of what they're talking about, but it just talks so fast. I can't keep up. Oh my yeah. God. I, first of all, that's really that's really cool. Like I, wait, how did you even get to the Japan? Were you, okay, I'm just going to introduce David really fast, right? Like David is an NLP guy. Everyone, a lot of people know him from LinkedIn. Um, and maybe just really quick, like five minutes. And then I got to ask you about the Japan thing, like five minutes. What's your, how are you defined? Like, what's, okay. yeah. Yeah, sure. I'll give my little uh, rundown of who I am. Um, so I'm David Knickerbocker, and I, I did grow up in Japan. Uh, I'm My parents moved over there when I was six years old, and they're still over there right now, actually. So my dad is a military contractor over there. Um, so I'm not really a military brat because he was a civilian military contractor, but ah. I grew up with military kids my whole life. Um, and then when I became an adult... You were like the outcast of the of the military kids. So I was kind of the outcast of everybody on the <laughs> island because I, I didn't really fit in with the military kids completely because I wasn't really military. Um, but I also didn't really fit in with the locals, you know, because I was gaijin or, or foreigner, you know. Um, yeah, definitely. So I, I'm just used to being kind of, you know, who I am. And uh, I guess I got comfortable in my own skin and just dealt with it. <laughs> So, but I, I grew up over there. Um, I, I do speak the language a, a bit, you know, the, the necessities. Um, but about seven years ago, I moved to the Pacific Northwest um, because I, my, my job over there, I had a military contracting job and it got cut. And I thought this is a great time for me to actually see what I can do out, out in the world. <clears throat> and um, so I moved to Seattle and it's just, you know, like it, it, it was like a knowledge explosion moving to the West Coast, you know, getting to work with just, you know, really sharp people in the IT industry. So, but before that, I was a military contractor. Um, and before that, I worked with a company that works on a military base, but not contracting. And before that, I worked for a J Japanese newspaper on Okinawa as oh. their webmaster. So I, I've kind of been around. <laughs> yeah. I'm so what, are you, what is your exact position what is your i don't know yeah. place in life what's what's the right now if you can sure 
Yeah, yeah. So, so McAfee, the antivirus company, hired me, shoot, almost six years ago, um, to do data operations, and so, um, and and that's basically somebody that just knows how to fix any kind of data problem. And so, if MongoDB went down, they threw me at it. If Hadoop went down, I didn't really have to help with Hadoop very much. I'm thankful. Um, if SQL Server went down, I was a DBA for a while. And so I've just been around data my whole life and I'm very good at fixing things. Um, but one thing like, that- Yeah, like the IT guy of data basically, right? You're like the yeah, IT guy of data. Kind of, but like I was building databases when I was 16 years old and I was programming when I was six years old. Um, so like data is just very, very familiar to me since I was a kid. And so I can, I can do IT stuff, but I don't really like it. Um, I prefer to be creative, which is kind of what you see on, on my LinkedIn. I like to build stuff or chase curiosity or uh, try to get, get answers, figure out, figure out what's what, you know, figure out how people are influencing others or um, figuring out the direction, directionality of influence. Um, yeah, kind people, of the love you, people love you on LinkedIn. Why, why do you think that is? I don't know. Because uh, I'm, I'm not the easiest person in the world. <laughs> You know, I, I'm not a troll, but I'm I'm not afraid to speak my mind also, you know? Um, and so I, I do think that people gravitate towards authentic people that are just, I mean, I do, I do have tact, you know, I don't really say all the words I want to say sometimes. Um, but at the same time, I'm just an honest person. Like I, like th this is who I am all the time. And so, I like being this way because, you know, you don't have to deceive others. You don't have to maintain, um, you know, the illusion of who you pretend to be. You can just be who you are all the time. So it's, it's great to be this way, but I don't know. Like I've always been building communities. When I was 12 years old, I built a BBS on a military base with a friend. And that was like the internet before the internet. Um, and then in Japan, I had a very successful forum that just about every military member on the island was a part of. Um, and, and so I don't know, like I, people just get drawn to me somehow. And it makes me a little bit uncomfortable sometimes to be so out there, but it's just not something I can really control. So I don't know, I just like to share my thoughts, I guess. Does that make sense? Kind yeah, of? yeah, makes makes sense. So I, I gotta ask you like, so wait a second, you're an American, right? Like you're born yeah. in the US? Yeah. I'm a U.S. citizen, but I don't really feel like one. <laughs> I feel like because <laughs> I spent because I spent my whole life in Japan. Um, from what age? From what age were you in Japan? From six years old. Six wow. years old. Wow. Uh, Thirty. All of a sudden, you come to like the U.S. and you're like, "Wow, white people, right?" Or what is that like? <laughs> yeah, <right>? man. Well, <laughs> yes. there, there, there's a. I mean, there's a ton of Americans on Okinawa because of the U.S. military. So I grew up with the military. Oh, you grew up in Okinawa? Yeah, yeah. So yep. I heard, I heard that's must be so interesting. I heard like that they're not exactly Japanese, right? Like they're, no, they're, yeah, they're, they're their own thing. Right. So are they still like, do they still have that Japanese kind of, you know, that Japanese kind of racist thing where they, they, they're very like different from foreigners or uh, yeah. don't interact too much with foreigners. And that's one thing that kind of eventually got to me. And that's one of the reasons why I moved and it, like they have racism in Japan but it's not like American racism, you know, it's, it's more passive aggressive and it's just an annoying. Um, but from, <laughs> well, wait, but from what is, age, what is American racism? Well, like we, we have real problems with violence. Um, we have real problems with 
oppression. Whereas in, in Japan, it's, it's really not too bad. Um, I, I did get bullied quite a bit when I was a kid, um, but I learned to stand up for myself real fast. And so I don't really get bullied. Um, you probably, you might notice, I don't really even get, I don't really get trolled on LinkedIn and it might be because I know how to handle them. Um, and so like, I just don't back down. How do you handle a troll? I got to ask, I've, I've been trolled, I guess once or twice. Yeah. I mean, part of it has to do with your confidence, but you don't have to put up with trolls for one thing. So when they're just wasting your energy, you can just get rid of them. You can just block them. Um, but sometimes I like to mess with them. Uh, sometimes if I'm just bored, I'll think of, you know, a couple of different ways I want to mess with them. Um, <laughs> okay. You got to give but, me an example now. Like how, how well, do you mess like, with a troll? Like, like you could tell them, uh, give me a second. I'm, I'm going to, I've got a reply for you. Just give me a second. And then never, ever, ever come back. You know, just keep them waiting. Um, it's like a really passive aggressive way. To yeah, it's, it's really passive. Like the Japanese version of messing with a troll. Like, yeah, just, Maybe, just. Uh, you're like the Japanese wait. troll, actually. You'd be like a Japanese troll, right? Yeah, probably. So you <laughs> kind of seek to waste their time without them knowing it, you know, and then eventually they just give up. But like I said, I, I built a forum in Japan and we had like 50,000 members. And so we had a lot of trolling. Um, and, and back then we kind of enjoyed the trolling aspect of the internet. This was trolling is fun, right? I think it trolling is fun. Is yeah, fun. It, it can be very fun, especially, I mean, some ideas are stupid, you know, <laughs> um, and it, it's kind of fun also just to see how tactful you can be, you know, like you can be a respectful troll, you know, you don't have to stoop to their level and just get into name calling, um, get into stuff that can cause you trouble at work or anything like that. But you can definitely harass trolls. You just have to be wise with how you do it, you know. So it's it's a cat and mouse game. You just got to flip it on them, you know. That's awesome. So, but just to sum up the Okinawa thing, I, cause I really am interested, even though Japanese people, right. Japanese people don't consider Okinawa people to be Japanese, right. From what I understood, right. Like there's yeah. some kind of levels there. They're like, there's the level of how Japanese you are, right. Like if you're in America, yeah. there's a level of maybe how white you are or something. I don't know. And what, what kind of name is Knickerbocker, by the way? Is that like, uh, is that like, where's your family from? You know, that's a, that's a, that's a funny story too. Cause I honestly don't even know too well because I grew <laughs> up far, far away from my relatives. Um, and then none of them survived. I, none of them are alive right now that I care about, um, which is a really mean thing to say, but it's kind of true. Um, and I, I don't even know, man. <laughs> Okay, so, but you don't even know from like what kind of region. Like, if I had to guess, like Nicar, maybe this is a stupid guess, but I want to say like something Irish or or something like that. Is I, that. I was thinking German or Polish or something like that, and I, I I feel like I asked my dad about it several years ago, and I just forgot. I I don't really know, and and like you were like we were saying, um, I don't really feel American because I spent so much time over there, but I also don't feel Japanese because I was a a guy gene, like guy yeah, 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 yeah. I don't. And so every single day of my life over there, I got called a guy gene, you know, and you can only put up with being called a foreigner so many times. Like, uh, is it I done out of like a disrespect kind of way, or is it just done as like, because I can tell you in, in like China, everywhere I went, it's like, 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 like,
they just call you for they just stare at you and call you foreigner and i don't think it's done kind of like in a in a bad way i think it's just kind of like you know it's just kind of they're honest (laughs) they're like an honest people right like they look at you and they just kind of say what goes through their mind they're they're like donald trump right by the way i was i was really surprised in china how many chinese people love donald trump actually you walk around yeah yeah i swear it's more than america right like you it's more than the u.s you walk around china and they just they love donald trump like yeah that's pretty wild right uh especially because he's the hardest one like the harshest one with china they're like yeah yeah but uh, yeah, like they every day, every day I was called Guy Kokujin, and 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 they don't mean any ill will. But like even when I was uh, I was working at it uh, when I started my career right before it, I was an English teacher in a Japanese elementary school. Uh, you're still there, right? Thank yeah. You. Okay. Okay. Um, but like um, every teacher that I worked with the whole entire year, you know, they would never call me David or David Do or you know, Knickerbocker son or whatever. It was always this Gaijin son, Gaijin son, Gaijin son, Gaijin son, over and over and over. And over. And so, so my name was literally foreigner son, foreigner son, you know? Oh my God. Wait, what is, what is the son part? Can you just explain that for a second? I, I hear that all the time, but what, what does that mean? Son but, is just like person, you know? So basically my name was uh, foreigner person. <laughs> <laughs> Okay, that's, I'm sorry, that's too funny. It's terrible. That's I, too I, funny. That's too yep. funny. And, and so, like, eventually, <laughs> it just kind of got old. You know? Is it that, where were you in, oh, yeah, you were in Okinawa. Is it that rare to see, like, foreigners in Okinawa? No, it's not. But, like, that school was all the way at the bottom of the island. Um, and if you know the military bases, they're more towards the center in the north part of the island. Um, and so there are parts on even that little tiny island where you don't see as many foreigners. But I think it's just custom, you know, that's just yeah. normal. But like I worked, I worked for a small ISP that was American run and we had Japanese coworkers and there everybody used each other's names, including the Japanese people. So I think if you work in a place where, you know, 99% of people are Japanese and one person is American, they're just going to call you Gaijin-san. And that's fine. You shouldn't take it. Um, you shouldn't take it negatively. I'll call you Knickerbocker-san from now on. <laughs> on LinkedIn too. I'm going to be like Knickerbocker-san. Uh, so yeah, yeah. Okay, well, this is the thing about Japan, right? Like, I'm I'm pretty. I gotta. It's pretty interesting that I'm talking to you. I'm kind of interested off and on in Japan in different ways, right? Like, one of the things I'm I'm kind of really. I, first of all, I think it's. I don't know if you agree. It's like the most. I feel like it's maybe the most unique culture on the planet, right? Like the most different culture maybe on the planet, right? Um, yeah. Do you, do you agree true. with that by by the way? Like. I think that I think that every culture is unique, but they definitely have something about them. You know, like they're modern, but they keep their heritage. They keep right, their right, right, right. They have know, a thing like that. It's wild. They, they're, and, yeah, they're and, and they have they they value quality so much. You know, um, sometimes to a fault. But man, I I love going to like Kyoto or Nara um, in mainland Japan, and and their temples are just beautiful. Um, and there's one place near Kyoto. Do you know what Kyoto is? You've probably heard of that, right? It's like yeah, of course. It's a city. Building. It's a big city in Japan. Yeah, they got these just amazingly beautiful buildings. But there's this place in Nara, or called Nara, that's near Kyoto, and they have deer that just walk around, and and you can buy a bunch of like crackers to feed them, you know, for like three dollars or something. Um, and these deer will just walk up to you, or literally step on your feet. And I had one like jump up and put its 
front legs on my shoulder. Uh, it, like it just wanted to eat crackers so bad. And, but they're, they're cute. They're like giant dogs, you know? And so like, that was my favorite place to go in Japan. Cause I just love animals. So okay. well, when I go to Japan, I'll, I'll hit you up about some, maybe some travel advice. Definitely. Uh, so let's go back like Knickerbocker son. Let's go back a little bit to the NLP. Like maybe you can tell me a little bit about, about the field because I'm, I'm really not that. Um, sure. Yeah. I, 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 yeah, like I mentioned, I think you read in my LinkedIn post, I mentioned that I, I kind of tuned out around word to vec right? Like I was kind of interested in NLP and then around word to vec like after word to vec came out somewhere after that, I kind of just, I don't know, yeah. I, I died down a bit. But I, I'd be interested to hear, you know, from a guy who, who's constantly learning and sharing stuff and yeah. updated. What's going on in NLP? Like, where are we? What can uh, we do? I'll just explain my journey. Um, and like I said today, like I, I don't really care about cutting edge too much. I kind of like, I, I see all these great things that people post about this really wicked stuff they're doing with neural networks. And I'm honestly kind of turned off by neural networks. Um, I, I just, I'm a lifelong software developer and I believe in keep it simple, you know? And so I see things that just, feel overly complicated for some of the things that people are trying to do. Like you don't need a neural network to do sentiment analysis, for instance. Um, but just to kind of give you some background, um, like, like I said, I was hired as a data operations guy um, and McAfee hired me to, uh, we call it uplift um, a bunch of their ancient servers. They were like 10 plus years old servers um, and they wanted them to be on brand new hardware so that they would stop breaking. And so I did this for a whole bunch of servers. And then I ran into a group of them. There were four of them that had code running on them on them that I just did not understand whatsoever. <clears throat> and the code had something called random forest in it. And so um, I talked to one of my friends that had some background in data science and I asked him about that. And so he explained to me, this was only like four years ago. Um, so he explained to me what random forest was and basically how it works. But the code that I was looking at, you know, it took data as input and it magically created data as output. So that didn't make any sense to me because I didn't understand how the model was. The, the missing piece was the model wasn't being trained. You know, the persisted model had been de deployed. So it was completely black box to me, you know. Um, and so um, as a data operations guy, this bugged the heck out of me because how do you validate that it works when you uplift it to a new server? You know, uh, this is 10 plus year old machine learning, how do you do that, you know? Uh, so it was wild. And so I started, uh, I, 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 well, the next thing that happened was like on LinkedIn, everybody started talking about AI. And I thought that while- When I did that busy, happen about? How, how long ago are you talking? Like, well, when like did everyone start talking about AI? I remember this moment too, but when did it happen? I, I can't remember. It was probably about four years ago was when it started really, going nuts on LinkedIn, I think. Oh, is that all? I could have sworn. Yeah, maybe you're right. Yeah, because it was like big data and, and big data. Big data. Yeah. Yeah. And so every, every year has its own thing. And so 2015 was all about big data. And 2016 um, was mostly about DevOps. And then 2017, we really started to see a lot about AI. And so 2016 and 2017, um, I really thought that I had missed the bus. You know, I thought that I had spent too much time fixing ancient legacy stuff and the whole AI revolution happened and I missed the whole entire thing. 
And so I bought a book called Super Intelligence um, because on the front cover, it says Bill Gates recommended it. So I bought it. And uh, as, I, as I was reading- Is that it, a thing? Does Bill Gates recommend books? Sometimes. And so, yeah, it's actually a really good book. I recommend it. And okay, Can um, you like I, understand Bill Gates' personality from his book recommendations or- Yeah. Does he have like a, is this like a, a weekly recommendation, a monthly recommendation? No, it's let me see. Reading I, recommendations. Probably, I probably got the book right here. Let me see if I can find it real quick. Uh, I have too many books. Never mind. Um, but no, he just put a, he just put like a must read or something like that on the cover. You know, not a, not a big deal. Oh, okay. okay. It, it wasn't his book. It was written by somebody else. Um, but I definitely recommend it. It's called Super Intelligence. And I never finished it, actually, because I got to a point in the book that said that true AI isn't going to be here for like another 80 years or something like that, if ever, you know. <laughs> so you're like, and, shut the book. I'm done. Yeah. So I shut the book and I'm like, what the hell are these people, <laughs> people talking about? LinkedIn? <laughs> you know, AI. And so like I immediately kind of got mad, you know, um, and so. I, I was like, okay, uh, I uplifted a bunch of servers and I got a like $400 bonus or something like that. And I, I threw all of it at machine learning books. Like I just bought eight books or something crazy like that all at once. Um, and I decided to just jump in. And so I bought, I bought books on both R and Python and you probably know I can't stand R. Um, but back then I bought books on both because I thought, oh, wait, I'm gonna I have to, I have to stop you a second. Sorry. Once in a while, I'm going to have to stop you. You, you spent your whole bonus on books. What is what kind of books are these? How expensive are they? What? No, this is not the first time. Honestly, I probably spend about $150, $200 a month on books. Um, but these were O'Reilly books and other... That's quite a bit. That's like um you know, that, that's like uh, one of one of those COVID stimuluses right there, right? Well, like Yeah, but if you think about it, 200 bucks is only $2400 a year. That's still way cheaper than college, you know. So like I Wow, college college in the U.S. is uh, <laughs> yeah. is uh, just a ridiculous, crazy expenditure. I I don't know why anyone studies in the U.S., including I, Americans. Yeah, I, I at some previous jobs, I was getting free tuition um, for any education I wanted. So I got a master's, and then I pursued a PhD for a while. Um, but I dropped out of a PhD, not because I couldn't do it, but because I got really tired of writing papers and getting basically no real response from um, uh. the people. And so it felt like I was paying thousands of dollars, you know, every couple months to write papers and get nothing back from it. Um, and it just like, I, I'm an applied person. I like building stuff. I don't care all that much about research for the sake of research. I like to actually build things that are useful. Um, and so I did the math and I was like, man, for as much as I'm paying, um, I could buy just, you know, as many books as I wanted all year, you know? And so that really was a big shift in my thinking. Yeah, but um, one your company is paying for and the other... Are you like secretly diverting resources from? No, uh... no, no. Uh, so, so I was working for one company that was paying 100% of it. And then I got a military contracting gig that paid bank, but didn't do tuition assistance. Uh, so well, uh, at that point, yeah. So at that point, I was making really ridiculous money. Um, that job was just 
it was tax exempt. And so like, you don't pay taxes, you get to keep all your money. That's just outrageous money. Um, but when I realized how many, uh, there were all these security certs I wanted at the time, like I wanted to go get OSCP and uh, security's got this really bad habit of, or this really bad obsession with certifications. And so like, if you check out a bunch of military guys on LinkedIn that work in IT, you often see like six certifications listed after their last name. You'll see CISSP, CEH, OSCP, wow. CPEN, C blah, 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 you know? And it's a serious obsession with- Wait, uh, it's right in the title, like PhD, right? People put their PhD yeah. or M MSc, they just put the certifications there? Yeah, like if you, yes, honestly, go to LinkedIn and look up some IT security people. If you um, had a PhD are, right now, would you would you put the PhD in the in the title right next to your name? I probably wouldn't. Why? I, people, I, what is that thing where people put it? Some people put it up, some people don't put it up. What's that about? I don't. Well, for me, like I used to put CISSP up in my name um, because I didn't really care about it but it was more for search engine optimization, like for security jobs, they uh -oh. require certain certifications. And so I was basically trying to help the recruiters out a little bit, uh, but you'll often see people that have CISSP after their name. And so maybe PhDs do the same thing, um, or maybe they just <laughs> want instant credibility, you know, um, to, to differentiate themselves from, from others. But yeah, go, go, but yeah, go check it out, man. Like uh, next time you're on LinkedIn, if you see some dude who works IT security for like the military, start counting certs, you know, and uh, it's wild. Yeah, I will, I will definitely, I will definitely do that. Although I can't, I can't imagine that's going to happen. Like I never, I've been on LinkedIn a few years now. I never like, oh, this guy is a, I mean, I, I probably saw, interacted somehow with some people like that, but I never noticed anyone is a, IT security guy. Um, so yeah. it's, it's a lot. We, there is an actual mandate um, that everybody who works IT security for the military at the very least has to have their security plus cert, which is a very entry level security certification. Um, but if you want to go into management or, you know, executive level, you have to have your CISP, which is very pain, painful certification to get. Um, I had to study for three or four months straight and I did it right after a master's. Um, and so that was fresh and I passed it my first time, but many of my coworkers had to take it two or three or four times. Um, and well, now for what you're doing, you don't need any, any no, certifications, I, right? You can just, you could have done I, it out of high school, right? Like, I don't need it, but at the same time, it's domain knowledge, you know, and everybody says in data science that domain knowledge is the most important thing. Um, and I have kind of mixed feelings about that. That's domain knowledge. I, I think that so, sucks. It's domain not knowledge, domain knowledge is important, but you know, I was a DBA and I've been a developer at multiple different companies. And the more that you work for multiple companies, the more you get to understand things. And so if you work in it security, you're going to get an understanding of how bad guys work. You know, you're going to learn about phishing. You're going to learn about social engineering. Um, you're going to learn about malware and stuff like that. And so you're going to learn the Very domain knowledge. Yeah, you're going to learn it as you go. And so I don't agree that you have to have domain knowledge in order to enter any job. You know, um, hey, hey, I got to ask really, you, what do you think about this hack, right? There was now a big Russian hack 
Like, what do you think about yeah. that? Or I don't even know if it was Russian. Did they they figure out if it's Russian or if it's Chinese? Trump's like, oh, it's it's China. It's not Russia, right? Did you figure out who who that is? I don't know who it is, and I haven't been paying as close of attention as I should. I know it's a great big deal, and I know it's uh, caused some of my friends to have a bad time um, who work in, in security. What, but, what kind of bad time are they having because of it? I don't want to say. <laughs> <laughs> it's just giving okay. it. But like, giving theoretically, it. is this, you mean like a bad time? They have to like just burn their computers or something? They have to just like, people are just the, throwing computers? The one, the one friend of mine that was telling me uh, what he had to do was just telling me that he had a whole bunch of work to do. And I didn't dig into it because I've got, I just transitioned to a brand new team at McAfee. Um, I went from data operations to data engineering, and then now I'm on their brand new AI research team. And so I have a oh. brand new team um, and brand new teammates. And this is this is your team. You have like a. Yeah. And, and yeah. what kind of research are you guys expected to do now? I don't. <laughs> We're just getting started. Um, but but, but it's these all guys... it's all natural language though. It's all no 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 way. Um, and uh, no, <laughs> absolutely not. And so, I mean, most most security data or most data in general for, for machine learning, I mean, if you were to make a ratio, I bet you traditional models are probably 95% of the use cases, right? Like NLP is probably much less than that. And then computer oh. vision is much less than that. And graph neural networks are probably like the tiniest, tiniest sliver imaginable but <laughs> wait so you're not you're saying you're not going to need someone like me basically you don't need uh, no no man we, we've got a bunch of ml engineers on my team i work some, with some real i'm blown away with this new team they're so bright and so humble and so what friendly. is the background are they like what is the most common background there out of in your team is it mostly like structured data kind of tabular kind of data yeah, or... yeah i would say so but i bet you that that's the case almost everywhere i mean it's it's not structured I, I, I got to be careful to not tell too much because, like I said, I'm too authentic of a person. <laughs> I don't want to get myself in trouble. But I bet you it's the same thing at every company is that data comes across, you know, dirty. Um, you do have to clean it. You do have to flatten it to prepare it for your models. You know, everybody goes through the same or similar pre-processing pre steps. But um, the team that I transitioned to, you know, they were primary or I don't know if they were primarily, but they definitely have a research focus. And so a lot of them are researchers. Um, but what is kind of needed in the world today is more maturity in the machine learning and data science space, I think. And I've seen that from helping out data scientists in the, in the past. Um, and so I think it's very good to have people with operations and DevOps and data engineering um, background uh, to, to bring to the table to work with data scientists, you know? So- Yeah, no, definitely, of, definitely. No, yeah, I think so you, one of the biggest pain points is that you have to go through a data scientist today has to go through DevOps very, very often a data scientist has to go through DevOps. And mm -hmm. I, I really see DevOps as like a bottleneck of yeah. AI, right? Like in the one hand, it's amazing, right? You have all these now new cloud services. You can like, you can do so many things you can do before and it's much easier, right? Like you could, one person can, can spin up a cluster and, and build these complex apps use complex applications you just couldn't do before on the other hand it's like it's it's its own profession now you, and if you want yeah. to use it you have to you have to go through you have to go yeah. through that guy i think yeah and that's the opposite of what it's supposed to be you know like devops wasn't right 
created in order to become gatekeepers. You know, continuous integration, continuous delivery is supposed to make things fast, you know. And <clears throat> I think that MLOps kind of captures that. And that's really what my job is on this new team is to kind of bring the engineering elements to this group of data scientists and researchers. And I think that's a really good goal to have. Um, but it turns out that I have a lot of experience with ML as well. And so, you know, today I was, I mean, there's not many people working this week because holidays. And so I had a lot of peace and quiet to work on some NLP stuff that I was working on for work, you know. And so I do a lot of modeling, but I also know how to deploy and I know how to, to productionize. Um, so, you know, every now and then you'll see a post about, uh, how the unrealistic nature of unicorns in the machine learning space, but people do exist that have a massive background in, in data, you know? I mean, I've been building databases, like I said, since I was 16 years old and I've been working with data since forever. And so I hate the word unicorn, um, but I can't take away my experience. Like it's just forever a part what of it. What do you want to be, David? You want to be like a... Uh... You want to be a, a wizard? I'm, a necro I'm an AI necromancer, right? You can't, I, I wanna, you can't pick that. That's I, wanna, taken. I want to be an inventor. I want to build whatever I want to build. And uh, actually, right. my buddy, uh, a couple of years ago, when I first said I was thinking about getting into ML, um, he asked me what I wanted to do with it. And my answer was whatever I want to do with it. You know, Whatever I decide I want to do with it every day. And if you look at my LinkedIn, that's kind of what I do, you know, is I pursue whatever curiosity it is. And sometimes I bring all the pieces back together. You know, you have to kind of go off into the wild to see how the, the different pieces work. But once you do, uh, you can marry natural language processing with networks, um, for instance. And that's extremely ever, powerful. Like, you know? do you ever kind of encounter a lot of these things you do are personal projects, right? I mean, that's why you're actually quite qualified for your new position. I, I wonder if you ever like experience this kind of conflict, like sometimes for me, it's a conflict, or in the past, it's been a conflict. What's your actual job? And what are you doing as a personal project, right? And, um, yeah. and how much time are you wasting? On the one hand, I, I think it's in the end, it's, it's valuable for your company. And like, obviously, in your case, it's valuable for the company. Uh, but it's also it, I think it's, like, it's, it's critical for your career, right? You got to but there's yeah. some kind of like, I feel like there's some kind of, um, it's almost like a conflict, right? You're, like you're never completely comfortable building up personal projects uh, when you have a proper job, right? Like what's your feeling with that? Do you... So it, it's a balance for sure. And, um, you know, when I was in data operations, I actually, uh, I, I was taking a Coursera course on data science. And I actually explained to my boss, you know, that I wasn't looking to become a data scientist. I just wanted to build smarter operations. And so at the time, my idea was to use this stuff to build self-healing systems. And I still think that's a, a wicked cool idea. Um, if, a, if a database can recover by itself without having to call anybody, or um, if you can, for instance, um, like having a NLP. state, right? It's kind huh? of like, uh, it's like, it should have a state, basically. Mm -hmm. right? It's kind of like, you know, you have like Kubernetes defines a state for your cluster. And then when, when shit starts to go awry, it just kind of knows where it needs to be. It's constantly working to. Yep. 
and okay. and so and so that's part of it and just like you know actual scientists try to predict when earthquakes are going to happen or predict severe weather you know we should be able to predict when databases are going to crash well ahead of time you know right. as much as you can but there's always going to be some researcher that that does something like throws in a left side wild card and crashes the production database you know there's <laughs> something does something weird just because they they're not familiar with sql but at the same time you can't really fault that um you can't really fault that researcher because for one thing they shouldn't be allowed to do ad hoc queries against a production database like that um i mean that's the big thing but yeah for, that's for another thing, a, a production database like that uh just it should be able to withstand a query you know <laughs> Uh, or, or shut it down. So that's really a, a fault of us DBAs, you know, and so, um, but yeah, getting back to personal projects, um, I, I did sometimes face resistance to it, but I always did it on my own personal time. And so they, they could never do anything about it. You know, that nobody could ever fault me for studying data science in the evenings, you know, because I'm not watching TV, <laughs> you know, I'm doing what right. I want to do. So Look, it's kind of different. You know, I've kind of been around startup environments. I mean, I think it's kind of different from your environment. I've been around startup environments for basically forever. And then in startup environments, it's kind of different. It's like, there's, there's work, right? Like there, there's work. That's about all there. If, if you can do work, you should be work, working, right? Like that's kind of the, um, yeah. that's kind of my, uh, experience working in, in startups for, uh, you know, almost, almost, almost a decade now, like just if there's work to be done, it's your responsibility. There's work actually, you know, nobody cares too much about time. It's one of the things I, I love about startups. There's no, there's no hours. I mean, actually it depends what startups, obviously I was working in China and startups were not like this in China. They yeah. were, I mean, actually it was, it was just worse. It was like, also everything is your responsibility. And also you have hours. And by the way, the hours are like 12 hours a day and six days a week. Um, if you're lucky, I mean, I had one guy, people work in China, you know, just seven days a week. Like I had one guy, one engineer transferred to our team and he was just like, like, so why did you, why did you make this decision? He just, Oh, it's much more relaxing here. I'm like, what the fuck are you talking about? We're working <laughs> like crazy. It's like, no, my last company was seven days a week. Like, oh, yeah. Just um, so, but I can tell you in Israel, it's much more relaxed, right? But it, it's, I think it's a little more California style, like the Bay style. You have a startup. Um, there's probably something that you should be doing should that should be done. It's your responsibility. And um actually they don't usually care too much about hours like go come yeah. whatever uh, on the flip side you have to it's your, basically your life right but yeah. that that in that way you kind of have to do something you love so i think that's my personal experience um and then for me it's it's i guess it's more of a it's been more of a conflict in the past like um so th then you really have to pick a job you love and you can learn otherwise you just have to turn down the job yeah, I've, I've had some jobs that were unhealthy uh, with with how many hours we worked, you know, and, and so like, like to this day, my worst jobs that I ever had in the past were my highest paying jobs. And so um, nowadays, when a recruiter reaches out to me with just some ridiculous salary, I almost 
<laughs> I almost like feel like that's just going to be a nightmare, you know, um, because like if somebody is willing to pay you too much, then they, their expectations are probably garbage, you know, and they're going to overwork you to death. And so it doesn't matter how much you get, you know, and so it's always a balance. It needs to be just enough. It needs to be just enough hours. But, you know, McAfee or McAfee, I never say it right. And I've been here forever. Um, <laughs> I, I don't know. I can't figure it out either. Is it McAfee? Is I, I, think, it McAfee? I, think it's McAfee. I think it's McAfee. McAfee. Um, I, I, I grew too long outside of America and I've never had a friend named McAfee or McAfee in my whole life. So that, I, that's got to be an Irish name, right? Am I right? I don't know. I don't know. Sounds right. Um, but but anyway, we've always kind of operated as a small business. And even to this day, we kind of feel like it, you know, like we have hours, but nobody checks to see that you're chained to your desk at 730 in the morning, like my military jobs did, you know. Um, but at the same time, security is forever my passion, you know, more more so even than this ML stuff. This is just the latest thing. Um, I've been in security forever. And that's what I like to do. That's what I use ML and today even NLP for, you know. Well, actually, that's interesting. Maybe you could tell me, like, who are the major players in security? Right now, honestly, I'm, I'm a bit out of that game. I've got a whole bookshelf of security books that I've been neglecting <laughs> terribly because for the last three years, I've only gone down the data science rabbit hole. And so I keep, like, to, to my left, I have a bookshelf of, it's got to be like 60 or 70 data science books. And then to my right, it's just as many security books, you know, um, and you I open been... a public library. I think that would be, <laughs> I, always, do. I always give my books to the library um, when either a new edition comes out and I want the new one or when something is just a bit old, but you know, the information is still useful at an Are academic you... level. I just give it away to the university. I mean, to the, to the library. So what you're saying is, David, son, if I understand you correctly, is that libraries still exist? <laughs> yeah. I, I think I, last time I was in a library, I was like, I was like, I must have been six. My dad took me. I don't think I've been in the library since. I think maybe you know, I. It, it was, they were, they were actually super useful as a data operations guy because yeah? if, you, if your job is to put out fires in 10 year old systems. <laughs> oh, yeah, yeah. I can. Actually, yeah, I can see that being super valuable. Um, we have we have we have one database that is so old right now that I now that I'm on this new team, I guess I officially escaped finally. This book, this this database, to like go to the dinosaur museum and like dig the book out of the dinosaur's hand and be like, hey, do you remember this how this database, database? This database is so old. There are no books in the library, and I bought the last copy on Amazon of the book. And when the book showed up at my house, the entire book is written at like size seven font. I can't even read it. Wow. So oh, yeah, yeah, even... yeah, yeah. I think I remember those old like textbooks, right? Yeah, I got to show you this thing later on. But yeah, yeah send, me, send me a picture. <laughs> send me a picture. I can't even read it. So it, it's been completely useful, useless for actually fixing that thing. But yeah, libraries are very useful when you have to fix old problems, you know? Um, so like I, I gave away my Hadoop books to the library because, you know, there's got to be somebody in university still studying that stuff. Um, but like Hive or Impala, you know, Impala is still a thing probably. Um, but, you know, in the real world, we don't use Impala as much. You know, we use or we use uh, Athena or some other AWS database, you know. 
So yeah. Impala was cool for its time, but it's just, it's not modern technology. Um, but, you know, I, I've given away books on like XPath and SVG and XQuery and uh, RSS. <laughs> you remember RSS feeds? Like that was hot in 2005, you know? Awesome. And so I, I stay current with technology um, except kind of for machine learning. I don't really care about the bleeding edge of machine learning. I don't care about the bleeding edge research of machine learning. Um, I like, like I said, I like to build stuff, you know? And so, but the other thing you've heard me say um, probably several times is that I'm, I'm really not, I, I don't instinctively go towards neural networks. I try to build it simply first and really depending on the amount of data or what you're trying to do, you don't need a neural network, you know, you can. Yeah, no, just... I look, I completely agree. Right. Like at first, you know, at first also there was a lot of pushback on neural networks. Like I, I think a couple of years ago, there was a ton of pushback um, from like basically engineers and people were saying like, I think it was kind of right. Like, I think there was some justification. Um, there's definitely problems where you don't need neural networks, especially you're dealing with like tabular type data. Um, I think the second the data becomes kind of unstructured, I think that's where you start to look for neural networks. I think that's where they're valuable. Um, and that's the thing that's again, where it comes in natural language. I know you can do it right. Like, uh, I think back in the day before I was using word to vec, I was also using like, I think, uh, NDA. Am I, am I even saying it right? Uh, Dirichlet, Dirichlet, do you know, do you know what I'm talking about? Is it latent direct allocation? Yeah, yeah, LDA. That's it, right? So I was using yeah. like when I was you doing LDA uh, natural language oh, job oh, years ago. I was doing like LDA, and okay. then Word to Vec came out, and I was playing around with that as well. Um, but honestly, yeah, you don't. Actually, natural language back then, at least, it looked almost structured, right? In computer vision, it was obvious to me why deep learning was useful. I mean. Um, and, and the truth is deep learning has been very, very useful in computer vision, but now we're kind of getting to that point where kind of what you're saying s starts to make sense. Like the research just, they just keep running and running and they're just kind of avoiding all of the, the low level, the low level common problems that engineers face. And, and honestly, the research that's coming out today in computer vision, I don't think most of it is is practical right so yeah exactly um and, and the thing is though is that there is so many low-hanging fruit for nlp you know there's so many applicable uh, and easily doable use cases for nlp um and so like i'm working on one thing at work right now which i can't describe too much but uh my mindset right now is that if you have any text data you should investigate whether it's useful or not you know and so in the past what you would see with machine learning is that people would take text data and one hot encode it or label encode it or something like that to make it in a format that that uh machine learning can use you know right um but there are better ways to do it you know there you could use tfidf you know you could use oh, TF TF yeah you could use tfidf you could use tfidf or you could um feed the tfidf vectors to um truncated svd for instance um, in order to create topics. Uh, topics are very good at capturing kind of semantic or it, it's basically kind of like- Yeah, I, I remember that from the LDA period. 
but yeah. so you're not you're not the kind of guy who uses like embeddings like neural network embeddings to take your take your sentences and embed them or take your words and embed no. them the, it depends what I'm doing. Like you, you might have seen my recent post. I created a Christmas poem generator. I'm not sure if you saw that. Oh, cool. No, I didn't see that. Okay. I, I think no, maybe LinkedIn is like, oh, this guy's Jewish. Just, just take out all the Christmas stuff. I haven't seen much Christmas stuff. By the oh, way, okay. Merry Christmas. I didn't say it. It's, I think oh, it was yeah. yesterday, yeah. right? So, right. Merry. No, a yeah. few days ago. Sorry. Uh, really bad. But I created a. LSTM neural network um, that, and I fed it like 14,000 lines of Christmas songs. And my hope was that I could use it to create Christmas poetry, you know? Um, cool. And, and, and so it, you know, and, and so you should check out that post. I'll send you one of the pictures it, later on. It looks good though, right? Yeah, it looks pretty good. I mean, it's, awesome. it's not, it's not like human level because I only trained it for 24 hours because um, I, I did, I did it cheap. I did it on my laptop. And as I was doing it, my laptop was useless, you know, so I, I eventually wanted my laptop back. So I just limited it to, uh, I don't know. So wait, so we have like, like five minutes left, but I just want to ask you, um, uh, what, can you give me an example of uh, a, a reason you might need, uh, maybe computer vision in, in security and like a security application? Or, or even natural language. I'm more personally interested in computer vision. I would be interested to know if there's any security applications for that. Well, like when you're talking computer vision, that's when you're, so there's there's different kinds of security. You know, there's physical security, network security, application security, right? Um, and so if you're doing computer vision, then you're dabbling into physical security. And so that comes into- Oh, like you mean like a, like a bank, like a, a camera outside a bank kind of thing? Yeah, protecting buildings, protecting some kind of resource, you know. No, I meant like cybersecurity, like cyber, you know. I wouldn't. Well, I wouldn't. Well, no, I take it back. I have seen people do some clever things where they have transformed malware into an actual image and then used computer vision to detect whether it's malware or not. Um, oh. I'm, I'm not completely sold on that idea because I bet you there are more intuitive ways to do it using NLP. Um, yeah, it's kind of like where they take sound and they try to turn that into an image, right? And they put in the, like a spectrogram. I, I think yeah. the the sound thing, it's not a long-term solution. I think already there's some interesting solutions coming out that are just dealing with the waves. So um, yeah, I think in the end, people always find better ways around that, like the more intuitive, simple, yeah. intuitive ideas. Yeah. And it's black box. Like how, how would you be able to interpret a JPEG of a virus? after it's been declared to be malware, you know, and I'm sure that there is somebody out there, maybe even listening that knows the answer to that question, but um, that's something that I'm still puzzled over. But like, for instance, um, I think it is okay to sometimes, you know, cross mediums, like for instance, audio to an image or, um, you know, numeric to an image, like with malware, for instance, um, but I think you do lose some of the interpretability because it's just one additional thing that you're doing that you have to eventually undo in order to, to get to the information, you know, but like a uh, couple of using information, I think you actually, I'm not an audio. I'm not an expert. There's probably experts listening, but, but I, I had an idea a couple of weeks ago. Um, so like I worked on a graph neural network project last year for McAfee um, and we didn't really have too much success with it, but we did get it to work but it wasn't great. 
Um, but it's something that's kind of sits in the back of my can mind. You, can you say what the graph neural network was supposed to do? It's supposed to identify malicious IP addresses, you know, and so um, anything, but you could use it for anything, you know, you could use it to- Why do you need a graph neural network for that though? I, I don't want to go into too much detail and get myself in the <laughs> trouble. <laughs> um, but, uh, like, but you could use this for anything. Like if you wanted to, uh, what was I using it for? Oh yeah, I was playing with the Titanic data set the other day, cause that's just a, a staple of data science. It's just to play around with, you know? And so um, I built networks of the people who are on the boat. Um, and so I wanted to use networks to predict who would live or die, you know? Right. And I don't think that there's a good solution for networks with that, but I still wanted to just do it, you know, just to see if it would work. But I had a dream a couple of weeks ago. A lot of my solutions come to me in my sleep. Um, and then I wake up and I'm like, oh, shoot, you know, and I write that on my whiteboard. That's and I build awesome. It. That's awesome. And so um, I had this idea and it's still written on my whiteboard right now. I'm looking at it and it takes a network and turns it and it transforms it basically into something that NLP can use. And so that's going to be one of my posts soon. And I can't promise that it's going to be any good, but I do think that it will do well, something. What does it take to transform into something NLP can use? Um, honestly, next to nothing, because like once you've built the graph, you can transform it into an edge list. And so an edge list is uh -huh. just going to be a node to another node. And so if node A is a person's name and node B is a person's name, then we're back to NLP. I, so, see, I see what you're saying. I see. So you've got text, text, uh -huh. and then a zero or a one. And so that's perfect for a neural network. And whereas, right. yeah. whereas graph data is much more difficult, you know? To feed it to a neural network to get it right so it's a it's an idea i have no idea if it's going to work but you know that's what okay. we do okay nick Gorbucker son we have to finish this podcast for okay. i think it's 55 minutes now so um yeah it was really a pleasure having you i actually you make me made me more interested about like different applications on cybersecurity. um but you know you can never talk about that that's kind of kind of sucks but uh <laughs> maybe we'll maybe we'll get a different chance maybe like after you leave mcafee like you ever do you have some kind of like is there some kind no. of rule? no no never okay I have no, I, have, I have no nda that i know of and um, <laughs> i mean usually stuff that i can't talk about is because we're trying to do something with it you know so it's, it's just you don't want to give away anything so well great great so um great knickerbocker son thank you for coming to the episode and uh we'll talk soon